This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 388. You need to look and audit what you're doing and the impact that that has on your business. And most people that I see, the vast majority of their day is spent on things that are irrelevant to the long-term goals of their business and should be and can be executed by people that are better than them at that. And that was one thing that I did clearly at the first, and I do all the time, is I'm like, I'm not doing something I'm not good at. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co host, Mr. David Green. David Green, DG, what's going on in the world of real estate for you? It's going pretty awesome. I got a flip. We're getting ready to put on the market. I think we might have actually just put it on. That one's in Oakland. And then this Bay Area market's really hot. I know it's, it's kind of a weird time in real estate because you've got parts of the economy that are like the hottest I've ever seen and other parts that are actually kind of slower. And everybody's asking the same question. What's going to happen? Are we headed to a recession or are we not? So it's exciting. Rates are dropping right now. It's yeah. a good time to refinance a house. There's moves to be made depending on where you are. That makes sense. Yeah, I actually just refinanced my house, closed on that. Good. I got an offer on, yeah, so that, that went through. I'm saving like $500. I remember talking to you about it and you were like, eh, I don't yeah. really want to have to give Yeah, 500 a bucks bank. a month. <laughs> it was it was hell, but we got through it. I also got an offer a couple of weeks ago. We talked about on the flip I'm doing out here in Maui. Mm-hmm. Got an offer on it. It fell through, which I thought it might, which uh, which is why you told me not don't to take, take it, it, which I did. I took your advice and I didn't take it because they wanted to put a, like a long, uh, what was it called? The contingency, contingency that they sell their yeah. house. Right. But they hadn't even listed their house yet. Like, yes. They didn't want to list it. So anyway, so we ended up not taking it. They re-offered without it. We took it and then they backed out anyway. So and it was that just was your sign that yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm but glad anyway, we got Brandon, another offer. I'm glad I get to be a part of your life because <laughs> even your Hawaii house, remember you were like, I don't know if I yeah. should buy this thing. And yeah, we went yeah, through yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. now like if I, I had told it. you then you're going to knock 500 bucks off the price anyways, you probably would have been like, hmm, yeah, I think that sounds good. Yes. Yeah, but you wouldn't have known because you're not psychic. But I did get another offer. Even though that one fell through, I got another one that's much better. So we're in contract again. Hopefully that goes through. And we got two mobile home parks under contract in two days last week, which was incredible. So big shout out to Ryan Murdoch for uh, uh, his work Mm. on that, as well as the rest of the Open Door Capital team. So congrats on that. Yeah. So both of us, you know, real estate's picking up. It's uh, despite the whole COVID thing kind of maybe winding down, maybe going to come around for a second uh, show up. I don't know, but definitely real estate is still moving. So if you're out there, one of those people right now listening is going, well, I'm waiting for everything to calm down. Like, don't wait. Like this is a time to like sharpen your ax. You can start swinging at that tree later mm. on when, whenever you are ready. So even if you're not fully ready to buy right now, maybe you're laid off, whatever, start sharpening your ax. And if you have a sharp ax, start swinging with that. Let's get to today's quick tip. Uh, today's quick tip. Uh, we are doing a survey of every single person who listens to the podcast. So here's the deal. If you listen to the bigger pockets podcast or the real estate or the business podcast or the rookie show or the money show, you are required by law to fill out a survey for us. I'm just kidding that by law, but you are, we are requesting your help. And if you would just go to biggerpockets.com slash survey today biggerpockets.com slash survey. We have a survey on there. We just want to answer a couple, uh, have you answer a couple quick questions so we can improve the show. It'll take you less than five minutes. You can do it on your phone. Just don't do it while you're driving. Mr. David Green, I think it's about time we get into today's show. Today, we're talking with one of my favorite people in the entire world. His name is AJ Osborne. He was on the episode three or 286. 286. Back, 
that. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, we uh, had an incredible conversation. We just got done recording it with AJ today. All about, I mean, tons of different stuff. Everything from leadership to scaling your business to self-storage, which when he goes through why you should consider self-storage, it's going to really make you uh, reconsider what you're doing and jumping ship to go do self-storage because there are a lot of really cool benefits to it. He also walks through like a seven, kind of a seven-step uh, process or like blueprint of how, what you need to do to build big wealth through self-storage. And really what that applies to is like this Burr strategy, how Burr applies to commercial real estate. So that, I mean, it's a longer episode. It's an hour and a half long, I think, maybe somewhere around there. And we get into the Burr topic later in the show, but make sure you listen to the first half as well uh, before we get into the discussion of the self-storage and Burring, because man, both halves are so vital to the growth of an investor's life. So I think you guys will love it. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll learn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com slash VP. Connectinvest.com slash VP. So without further ado, <laughs> let's get, let's get you know, that'll make more sense later yes, in the will. show. 
Let's get to the interview with Mr. AJ Osborne. All right, Mr. AJ Osborne, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets podcast. It is uh, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. So let's uh, for those people who don't know who you are, shame on them. <laughs> but that's right. Yeah, there's shame on them. So <laughs> maybe give us. They didn't listen to your episode, which by the way was number what was it? Three eighty two eighty six. Two eighty six. All right. So for those who are not here, which is almost a hundred episodes ago, give us a quick yeah. update on who you are and what you do. And uh, I would love you maybe to, to in, in a brief version, uh, retell that story of, of kind of like what you told last yeah. time. Yeah, I will. I'll walk. Cool. So it's that's probably how most people know of me. Yeah, but yeah. I'm AJ Osborne. You know, I'm from Boise, Idaho. I am in the self storage game, but we own commercial assets as well as other businesses and service businesses, online businesses. And a lot of people probably remember me as the guy that got paralyzed overnight. So what happened to me is I, you know, I worked in the insurance world, and then oh man, it's been a while now. It's been like a long time. We started slowly diversifying in early 2000 into other asset classes. But after 2010, I thought, you know, we really need to step up our real estate game because I got really worried about how connected my time was with my income. You know, I have kids and I thought, I don't know how life's going to play out. And I was a sales guy, right? So I got paid on what I did. And if I didn't work, you know, like any normal person that gets a W-2 or anything else, it was over for me. So we we looked at other asset classes and which ones would suit us best. Really, I had just kind of a fundamental thing where it was like we needed to be able to improve the value, right? Value add strategy and do a lot of revenue management and then be able to redeploy the capital at a known rate of return. Standard, right? Real estate investing stuff. So we started doing for us, that was self-storage that became our major move. But we did that. And then out of nowhere, I was working for a big corporate company out of Chicago. And I became paralyzed literally overnight. We had no idea what was going on, went to the hospital and within two days, um, I was put into a coma. And when I came out of the coma, I was hooked to tubes and ventilators and machines keeping me alive. And I was paralyzed from head to toe. And so I obviously was no longer able to work. In fact, my, my boss came and they were, they were nice enough to keep me on the payroll for a long time, at least until I could speak again. I couldn't speak for over 10 weeks. Um, And then they came and visited me in the hospital and, you know, let me know, which I knew. (laughs) Don't know when you'll ever work again. So the relationship's over. And then that was while I was still lying in a bed paralyzed in the hospital. And for that reason, you know, I say, listen, real estate, investing, self-storage, it saved my financial life and my family's. My wife could take care of me. We'd had our fourth child at the time. So four kids and my wife's got a, a quadriplegic husband lying in the in the hospital who she can't even speak to because he's on tubes. And we didn't have to worry about selling our house. We didn't have to worry about my wife leaving me and the kids to try to earn an income to cover us while I was obviously not able to do anything. And that was because, you know, we started to really get serious about real estate investing uh, a few years before. And it's, I guess, you know, that's why I'm passionate about stuff because it's nice and people think, oh, you gain wealth and things, but it's so much more than that. It's having control of your financial well-being and financial future is having control of your life. It's having control of your time and it's, it's true freedom. 
And for people that have experienced things like job loss, have experienced that sudden abrupt, there is probably nothing more you know, disturbing in your life when you don't know how you're going to pay for grocery bills and you don't know how you're going to pay your mortgage. It is just, there's nothing more that can upturn us in society than that is, you know, once again, so many people have realized over the last little bit. And so for me, it was something that I came out and I could still do while I was in a wheelchair trying to recover. They sent me home paralyzed in a bed and I, my wife took care of me and my kids and I slowly started to get better and recover. I had to relearn how to eat. I had to relearn. I was in occupational therapy, speech therapy, you know, forever. And then I got in a wheelchair and I could go out, which was amazing. No one understands freedom until you don't have it. And then, you know, that wheelchair was like, the best thing that had ever happened to me. I could get out of a bed. And then from my wheelchair, I started uh, another company. And then I kept going. And just in the last five months, actually, I got rid of my leg braces, which I was told I would never get out of and I'd never be able to walk normal again. So I stopped going to rehab because they said, you're not getting out of these braces. It's not, it's just not going to happen. And so I left rehab and said, well, if that's not going to happen, no reason to see you. And so I went and me and my kids and my wife, we worked on it. And you know what? It took took another about another probably six, eight months, but I got out of leg braces. That's awesome. And, and at, at, at some point in there is when you and I met, like, cause you were, I yes. remember, were you in a, were you in a wheelchair? I think you were. I, or, I had a scooter. Remember? Scooter, it was like yeah. a little red scooter. Cause I couldn't, couldn't walk. I was in leg braces. Yep. Um, and so we met in Hawaii yeah, the on Disney, the beach. Cause yep. yeah. Right the Disney Alani yeah, Disney Alani, right in front that's of Disney right. Alani. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Cause we, after we'd been in the hospital for the last two years and stuff before we'd met, finally we were to a point where we thought we could travel. I had a wheelchair, um, but we met on a scooter and, uh, um, <laughs> I know I was this little guy driving around scooter i'm like hey i think i know you how do i know you that's (laughs) awesome but yeah it was uh we took the kids and we went to hawaii for a long time and thought let's you know forget about this stuff and once again we could do that because we had cash flowing assets that paid us well i didn't have to work that's awesome if you listen to episode 286 you remember aj his story is incredible we kind of glossed over it right here but it is one of the coolest most inspirational things you'll hear and if you haven't heard it, I'm just going to highly recommend right now, make yourself a note, talk into your phone, give yourself a reminder, go listen to episode 286. This is, I mean, everything AJ is saying, he's summing up, but it's something that when I first was interviewing AJ with Brandon, I was texting Brandon saying, this is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. And now AJ, you're a, I don't mean to blow too much smoke, but you just have this extremely pleasant, uplifting demeanor, the way you look at life, because you went through hell for so long. And it's a really strong argument that sometimes for the people that are listening that are not happy in their situation, they don't like their job. They don't like their financial situation. They're coming from a place where they feel like they're behind the game. Man, sometimes that's just your biggest blessing. If you take that and you flip it around, those are the people that just become unstoppable. Well, and it's strange now looking back at it because I, and I, I, I don't want to say this lightly or anything, but me and my wife really do believe that was one of the best things that ever happened. Mm-hmm. It was obviously a nightmare. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that you think that, you know, you're a quadriplegic, you're lying there, so you can't feel anything. You're just staring at a wall. That's not the case at all. In fact, my entire body, my nerves would had all been ripped apart. And so they were telling my brain that they'd been blown up. So I felt like my entire body was shredded and uh, they couldn't stop it with medicine. It just, they could not give me enough pain meds to stop it. So I didn't sleep for like 
a month and a half outside an hour or two hours at a time because I was in pain. I couldn't tell anybody. And I was just sitting there, you know, you couldn't eat, drink and everything like that. But with all that said, that created a life where I felt more independent. I was ready to take my life to the next step. I've, you know, done so much since then that I've had on a bucket list and I'm like, oh, we don't got time. We're doing it all right now. And, uh, you know, we just approached that way with life and my kids. And, you know, we, we, we were lucky and we had a good attitude through the whole thing. I, I love my nurses. I played in the hospital and they loved having me. And it was, you know, it was actually hard when I left the, um, it was, it's called a long-term care facility because the hospitals can, couldn't take care of somebody. They didn't like, we didn't know if I'd ever even get out of the bed. So they sent me to a facility that could take care of me. And when I left that facility, I, I was bawling because I was like, I can't leave these people. First of all, they kept me alive now for how long? Um, and that was scary leaving and going to the world, but they'd become like family. And uh, it was, you know, we, we just kept, kept going. It's just like head down, smile on your face. And, and you kept going And my wife and family, they were, it was like, this is just a blip. We're moving on no matter what the outcome is. This has nothing to do with the outcome of the rest of our lives. And uh, that made all the difference. It really did. That's cool, man. Well, like, like David said, everyone go back and listen to that episode. It was really, really good. Uh, now, now a lot of people might not know is that last, so last year, uh, I hosted, uh, you know, Tarl Yarber and I hosted a, uh, we call it a, a mastermind. It was basically, we, we invited a few of our friends and people that we knew that were like high level real estate investors out to Hawaii and we hung out for a week, right? Or I don't know, five days and had like one of the most incredible times ever. And what yes. people might not know is that you were there. Uh, we of yeah. course invited you because you're one of the coolest real estate investors I know. And like, <laughs> you were like, I don't know, it was, it was so incredible to have you there because you are, you are incredibly gifted at explaining things to people and be able to see what's going on in their business and kind of tweak it a little bit. Uh, and then at like leadership and be able to, to, to scale a business. So th- that's kind of why I wanted you back on the show today is not just to talk about yeah. self-storage, which we will get into, but also to talk about just leadership and scaling a real estate business. Cause like most people listening to this show are probably in a spot where they're like, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind having enough passive income coming in that if I had to leave my job or if I got in an accident or something happened, my family would be okay or worse. I mean, if, if I died, my family would be taken care of like, and so you've really nailed that process down. So I want to go through that a little bit today before we get into the actual self storage stuff, which I think is super fascinating. You know, what, what have you learned, especially in the last few years since the whole, uh, you know, the whole nightmare, what have you learned about leadership uh, and about, and, and we'll, we'll start there. What have you learned about leadership and how's that guy kind of guided your uh, evolution as a real estate investor? Yeah, you know, it, I view real estate, first of all, whether you're in self-storage or anything else, it, it doesn't matter. You're just picking a wealth vehicle that you're utilizing to accomplish a goal. At the end of the day, it's all business. It's a revenue management. It's capital management. And all you're doing is you're utilizing leverage in the form of people time, processes, procedures, technology, and capital to achieve, build, and reach a certain point. Now, how you use utilize those things is different in every scenario, right? But And the wealth vehicle may be different, whether it's you know an online business, whether it's self-storage, apartment buildings, whether it's a service company, it doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. So once you utilize and understand how to leverage those different aspects, you really then can start to design and build your entire 
entire life and your freedom. And one of the things that I find huge is leadership is that pride gets in the way of people and it kills their ability to lead because they can't utilize the tools at their disposal because they can't see past themselves. And that is just so absolutely damaging to our own personal success. And, you know, after lying in a bed and having people bathe me, uh, you know, pride kind of went out the window. So um, <laughs> that was one thing that I was really able to take to the to the next level and really look at my life and say, where have I been holding myself back? And I had a long time to lie in a bed to say, all these things I've been holding myself back on, it's time to let them go and let's let's move. If I'm going to do anything, we need to do it. We need to do it right. I need to do it big. You said something there that I thought was very insightful, and it has to do with how you look at real estate investing. Now, I want to break this down for a second. What we find with newer investors is they're a person who's starting this journey, and they know where they are, and they know where, where they want to go is financial freedom. And the first, the easiest way to look at this is someone tell me what steps to take. What's my first step? What's my second step? What's my third step? And they want a step-by-step guide that paints a path that everybody can walk. And Brandon and I have done this for long enough that we have this perspective, and AJ, I know you have it, that there is no same path for every person. There's different skills. There's different personal situations. There's different uh, a different goal for a lot of people. How AJ's mind works and what his skills are are different than if he would not have went through what he did. And they're different than what how my mind works because I went through a different life than him. So for some people to get to the end involves go up and over the mountain. They're very good. They're good climbers. For others, it doesn't make sense to do that. Walk around the mountain and while you're walking around it, pick up a bunch of berries that you can use for something else. A better way to approach financial freedom is to start with the end in mind and work yourself backwards and then see which parts of the journey you want to avoid and which parts you want to take. And the way that I like to start off to simplify this is just to understand you are, you are buying an income stream. When you're buying an investment property, just simplify it like that. When you buy a self-storage, an apartment complex, or a single-family house, when you invest in a note, you are paying money to earn the right to collect income from that asset, very simply. Then you work backwards. Can I leverage money? Can I borrow money from someone else to buy it? What are the pieces that I need to make this as painless as possible? And AJ, that's when you went into all these things like leverage, technology, people, systems. They all make sense when you say, I want to collect this revenue stream as simply as possible. And when you look at it that way, you understand not everyone needs to be a single family investor. Not everybody needs to be a a multifamily investor. You're all just trying to collect revenue stream. And when you understand the, the pieces that go into making that work, you can really find the niche that's going to work best for yourself. Is that what you found too, AJ? Yeah. You know, and the thing that you have to really realize is that knowledge is the key to all of this. It really is. The, it, because knowledge uh, creates the, really the arrows in your quiver. It gives you the tools that mm. you need to build the life that you want. And the reason why knowledge is so important, because the more you know, the more the more you can adapt that to your situation. And that's what it is. There There's nobody out there that does not have opportunity. It doesn't exist. There's lots of people out there that do not have the knowledge to take advantage of the opportunities or even see them in front of them. I mean, the experience of things that I got, I have more opportunities today than I've ever had in my life, which is really just because I have more knowledge and I can see more opportunities. And when you can see the opportunities, then you can utilize all those tools at your disposal to create them. Whether it's entrepreneurship or investing, it's the exact same thing. You're using the same tools. You're using your knowledge and the tools at your disposal, which 
there's never been more tools at our disposal than now. I mean, when I got started, there was no bigger pockets. There was none of this, right? I had to pay huge amounts from people to learn, to grow. I had to, you know, there was not a simple database that I could even search to find these people. It was very localized. So the opportunities for individual investors, people starting out has never been greater than it is right now. And when you look at how you're formatting the basis to grow off of, this is, I think, where people have the hardest time because there's so much noise out there and they need to pick and choose. And a lot of people adapt certain uh, certain avenues because they're told it's the best avenue. And when I look at when you're when you're starting out and defining that destination, not only do you not have to have a clear path, you have to have a clear tool bag. Once you have a good tool bag, you can start walking on the path because finance, business, all this, it's it's like you're walking in fog, right? You can see six feet in front of you, but you have to walk six feet to see the next six feet. Yeah. Those things go hand in hand. You can't do it without it. If you're not walking, you are not seeing further down, down the way. And if you don't have the right tools in the bag, then once you encounter problems and all the issues that you need, you have nothing to overcome them. And so curating a good network knowledge base, curating the right amount of the right people for the right jobs, all these different things that go into it, that allows you once the clock fog clears and you see the stone wall or whatever it is blocking your path, instead of just saying, I knew it, this is a dead end, there's nothing I can't do, you utilize the resources, you get over the wall and you keep going. And you're going to be walking and there's not going to be any problems at all. And then one day you're going to hit a wall, a river, whatever it may be, just like I did. And the the purpose is, is to utilize the things at your disposal to get over those obstacles and keep moving. And then the, the higher up you go, like on a mountain, that fog starts to clear. And then all of a sudden you get to point and you're just like, wow, the possibilities are endless. My possibilities are endless. And you can see so far ahead of you. And then you start looking at things differently. So I look at opportunities now based upon the one resource that I can't get more of, and that's time. And so for me, when I look at opportunities, they need to meet a very, very large criteria because we have so many of them. I have to pass lots and lots of them by. Well, it's that's part of going down the process. And that's just getting to a point where you can see those things and underwrite or evaluate those opportunities properly. Well, I, I love the fact, I'll point out a couple of things. Number one, you talked about just how like pride and ego gets in the way, right? Like, I love that fact that you pointed that out just saying, look, look, if you just believe you've got everything you need, like how many times have I, I, I've met investors who have just had had a really difficult time and I'm like, well, you know, like you, whether they failed at something or they just couldn't get a deal. And and I'll say something like, well, have you read the book on like, for example, like I can't find any good deals to flip. I want to flip houses. Okay. Well, what's the last book on flipping you read? Well, I don't really think that flipping, I don't really think that reading actually matters that much. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, I mean, have you, have you attended a, a workshop on flipping houses? Have you, no, I don't, you know, I just kind of like, I just know the stuff. I'm like, okay. Like you so say, you can see that, like that, like problem right there. Like the fact that yeah. they don't need those resources because I already have this. Yes. So I, I would, I just want to reiterate that if you are struggling, ask like in any area of your life right now, ask yourself, how are you being prideful in that area? And that's why, and how that's holding you back. I think that's a applies to anything. You're exactly right. Pride aligned with preconceived notions Mm -hmm. is like a no-go. Like I meet people that they just, it's self-sabotage. They have all the opportunity in the world. They can do anything that they want. They're not allowing themselves to move forward. And that's something that like, I can't help with it. You know, it doesn't matter how many tools you throw at them. They're not picking them up. And that is the real thing that's insurpassable, right? That's the thing that 
nobody can get over is if you're not allowing yourself to because of preconceived notions, because of your own pride that sits in the way and says, this is not worth it to me, or this is dumb, which I ran into. When I first got started in self-storage, I went to a self-storage convention and we were sitting in a room with like 20 people. And there's this, you know, got huge guy in overalls and sitting next to me and my wife beat her on. And I'm like, what am I doing here? It was like, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here going, I, you know, I want to start businesses. I want to take over the world and everything. And it was getting over the pride to realize the vehicle just achieved what I wanted it to. And to say, no, that's none of that stuff matters. That's not important to my goal. That's not important to accomplishing what I have to accomplish. And it, so often it it's, pure self-sabotage. And, you know, I mean, it still does. It's hard, right? Like when we were in Maui, you know, you told me, you know, you need to write, write a book. And yep. <laughs> I, and I was like, oh yeah, okay. You know? And I thought, I don't know if that's worth my time and everything. And then all of a sudden the limiting beliefs and preconceived notions, like AJ, you're dyslexic. You can't write a book. That's not for people like you. And I'm like, I told Brandon to, so I'm going to right? And so, and then I did. And so I wrote a book mainly because I made a promise to myself when I was in the hospital, you know, these things are so important have changed my life. That, those are the tools people need. I need to give them out and I need to understand. So I followed through. I got rid of my preconceived notions. I My pride was saying, AJ, if you get embarrassed, you know, you're going to look dumb and this is all going to come down on you. And so ego starts to overturn and then we just stop, right? And those things just kill us as individuals. And it's not that I won't fail. Of course I'll fail. I have and I will in the future. But it's being okay with that and not letting the pride and ego take over and saying you can't fail. What do you think about the person who doesn't plan for the journey? They just say, okay, I'm going to do this. And they just start walking and they're figuring it out and they get frustrated very quickly versus the person who has better expectations for what to expect. They say, okay, I know I'm going to get tired. My feet are going to be hurting, but I'm doing this for what I learned along the way. The, the grit that they develop versus the person who didn't understand what they were getting into and then how quickly they lose interest. So this is like a balancing act. I view people when I'm saying, all right, listen, you have to balance knowledge and actually doing. It's not one or the other. It's not bad or good. You need to meet in the middle. You can't be one of those people that just constantly learns and never does. And you can't be one of those people that just goes off their hip doesn't know what they're talking about. And so then all these things that you need to leverage that we talked about, nobody will help you. And we live in a world, no success, no wealth has happened on an island, never has, never will. The amount of people that help create my success, the amount of people that I'll need to create success is, is very large. And if I go into something and nobody trusts or believes me, or I'm not presenting value to those people, I can't move. And so you need to have at least an understanding of the goal and the path and the needs that you're going to need on that vent, on that journey, or nobody's going to want to jump on it with you. They're going to say, I don't listen, you don't know what you're talking about. And I can't tell you how many people I've had that have pitched us ideas as investments, business opportunities, things. And I didn't even really know about it. And I could tell why it wasn't going to work. And to me, it looked like you just didn't do your homework. You didn't know what, you, you know, you you didn't, you're not even prepared for this meeting, more or less prepared to go on this journey, which that's where risk comes in, right? Real risk is lack of knowledge. So knowledge creates the ability to execute. And I'm not saying you need to know everything, but you need to know the basis of execution. And without it, you know, it's, it, once again, you're, you're not going to get anybody to go down that journey with you. Yeah, that's really good, man. So you, you use this example earlier about you know, at the base, there's a lot of fog. You're not sure what you're doing. Yeah. But as you climb up to higher and higher levels of investing, you can see a lot further. 
I want to talk about some tangible, what are some tangible ways like that you have been able to move from being at the base to being higher up on that, on that mountain. And, and a phrase to kind of wrap this in is a phrase you and I joked about back, I don't know, a year ago, you said something like, I think you said like, I do two things in my business. I make high, yeah, I think you said I make high impact decisions and, yes. uh, there was another one in there. It's like high impact something else, right? Like, yeah, like that's what you do is like you, you make high impact decisions and you have high impact meetings or whatever, right? Like, yes. like it's, it's so what we talked about this idea of a, you shred a book someday called the high impact real estate investor, yes. which I, I'll still convince you to write someday. Yes. So <laughs> well, you did that, it on the last one. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll get you on this one. Because like, like you do such a good job. So what are some things that you've done tangibly to be able to do that? Like, what are some things that people listening to this can say, yeah, I want to move up that mountain and stop being in the fog. I'm going to get better. What what can people do to become better leaders in their organizations? Okay, so there's two things. If you're trying to take things to the next level, the first thing that you need to do is you need to audit your day. And you need to look and audit what you're doing and the impact that that has on your business. And most people that I see, the vast majority of their day is spent on things that are irrelevant to the long-term goals of their business and should be and can be executed by people that are better than them at that. And that was one thing that I did clearly at the first, and I do all the time, is I'm like, I'm not doing something I'm not good at. And two, I'm not doing something that doesn't take our business to the next level or has a large impact on the business and the lives of others. And that thought process took me out of the business and worked on it instead of in it. And this is really important because when I knew that I had to do that, I had to create processes and systems that were streamlined to execute what I know had to be executed. So I spent a lot of time to build the framework because I said the framework is what's going to get us there. So I hired in a guy that had worked with franchises, right? Out of all the people, I didn't get anybody that had to do with real estate. I went and found the guy that was running, he'd run franchises for Wendy's and Starbucks and all these different things, right? And I said, listen, I need to build a system that I can repeat over and over and over again. It needs to have the same look. It has the, needs to have the same feel. It needs to, have, needs to have the same outcome. I'm really good at this, but I, if I'm doing this all my own and if I'm not doing this in a way that other people can do it, then it's not repeatable and I can't you know, measure it and I can't do anything. So once we outlined the framework, then I could identify areas that I wasn't good at. So these systems and these processes, these need to be done by someone else because I'm not good at them and they're repetitive. And that won't allow me to do these things, which nobody can do but me because it's my business, right? So everything, when I'm looking at deal flow, right? So I have a deal flow funnel where all the deals come at the top of the funnel, Okay. All the market data and it goes and streams down through other people. And then the final, like, let's say 10, those show up at my desk. And then we have a process for evaluating deals where we have a deal panel. We all sit down, we look at the deal. We all have to give approval. This is extremely important because I recognize also, once again, we all have pride. We all have biases. So when I am looking at a deal, I don't think that I should be the only one that says yes or no. I don't believe in playing God or King, especially when I'm dealing with my business or other people's money. I'm humble enough to realize there's things I'm not going to see. We all sit down in a room. Half the room has to go against the idea. They literally have to find all the reasons that it won't work. And then we go through all the avenues and, and everything of the deal. And then at the end, we all have to sign off on the deal. 
This allows us to be unified in purpose, right? And this lets me and uh, uh, focus and get the insight from those below on executing on those deals and then passing that on to others. Well, I can't be analyzing tons of deals. I can't be looking at the best things to do. I can't make the right connections. I can't be out building uh, building our, our business if I'm stuck in the systems, if I have to do little things over and over and over again. And that's hard to let go of at first, right? Because you're going, this is my baby. This is what I'm working on. But if you don't, you just can't get over it. And so we had to, we use technology to align everybody on the same page with communications that were also documented. So this was another thing that was really important, documentation. As we went along, the more we documented, the more we could go back and see the things that went right and went wrong, we could adjust them. Once we adjusted them, that became policy and procedure. We now know this is the best way to execute. You need to do that. This repeats me running in circles. And so many entrepreneurs are just running around in a circle. And I'm like, stop running. What are you doing? Stop. Yeah. Let's move forward here, right? And But you can't do that unless you have a written out way to execute the best possible and a way that you can analyze that and change it as you move forward. I can't stress that enough. How would you apply this to somebody who's maybe... You know, they own a couple duplexes. Maybe they own a single family house or two. They're 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 newer on their journey. Maybe not like you yeah. know, fresh, like completely new, trying to buy their first deal. But they're they're like, you know what? I've got a few deals here. How do I scale this into a business? Like, and I love the fact that you said you know, like audit your day. I think that's an amazing tip, right? I, I love the deal panel. I think that's genius. Like, but what should what would you advice would you give to somebody who's at that lower level? Uh, saying, listen, the thing about it is, this? the lower level or the higher level, this doesn't change. And this is the problem that I think I have run into people. They go, oh yeah, but I'm not big. And I'm like, I wasn't either, but how do you think you get big? I don't care if you're starting with one duplex. When you're going, when you close the deal, you better be documenting. How did I find this deal? Mm -hmm. How did I make the decision to buy this deal? How did I close this deal? Who did I need to make all those things happen? Who are the people? And what were the tools and resources that I need? Did I need to use DocuSign, right? And now how am I going to collect rent? And then two, when you figure out all those things that happened on your first deal, then outline them all and say, well, these things let me do 40 deals. Well, these things let me do 30 deals. Mm -hmm. And on my framework, I'm very particular on utilizing things that can scale. And when you build a base that is fractured, when you put more weight on it, it breaks and everything crumbles down. So starting is the best time to get these things right. You don't have to be perfect and you can change on the way, but you have to have a process to identify what got you there, what got you this great deal, and then how to repeat it. And then the people, the systems that you put into place, they need to become your best friends. Um, I identified this early on when we had a broker, 50% of all my deals have come off, or excuse me, 50% of all my deals were me, I found them. The other 50% were through broker relations. And a good broker that can help you, and all my deals are off market, by the way, and a good broker that can help you understand, underwrite, is like gold. You have to keep them because there's more bad than there are good. And it's, you know, I went through a long process of interview, talking to people, finding the absolute best brokers that I could find that met my criteria and they saw my vision, right? We were on the same page with the outcome, the end destination. Then 
when I have them. So a perfect example of this is that broker brought me a deal. The deal was a off-market deal. The owner was having troubles with taxes or whatnot. This was a 100,000 square foot commercial deal that I bought and it was sold to me for 2.7 million, but I had to go work with the owner because the bank's like, this is in short sell. He has to give you permission. So the broker, the guy is like, there's no circumstances, any way, shape or form that I'm going to deal with that broker. So he had to sit on the sidelines after we got the deal done, which was an amazing deal. By the way, we, ex- we put 800,000 more and we expanded it. It's like 140,000 square feet and it's easily worth 10 to 15 million today, all day long. It does over a million in revenue. And we bought it for 2.7. I think when we were That's all awesome. in, that broker, you better believe I paid him. He, I didn't need to. I still paid him. You don't go short on the things that matter in your business. You don't go short-sighted. You have to keep that long-term view. Since then, we've accumulated over 50 million assets with him. All off-market deals, all of them have produced us 100% return, and they were presenting until we refied and took our money out, a 20% cash-on-cash return. It's the definition of stepping over dollars to pick up pennies. When you're starting out, find the best people, treat them extremely good, do what you're going to say you're going to do, and then document your journey. This is how you build a good foundation, how you can scale. This is how you can really get to your destination because you're not doing it on your own. I'll give you some very practical examples of how this can work at a small level. So for listeners who are like, well, that's cool. I'm not making $2.7 million on a deal. What do I do? In my real estate agent business, if like AJ, if you sent me a friend and you said, hey, David, my buddy needs to sell his house. Can you give him a call? We immediately send you two movie tickets to the movie theater that's near you just to thank you for thinking of us, right? Like you mentioned, you're already paying that person. Even if it's a small thing, it shows that you, that you value them. Another thing that I do is I go at the end of the year and I look at every house I sold, which is very easy. I can just like go on Zillow and see what I sold. And I say, where did I find this person? They, my mom told them about me. I did an open house and I met them. I did a meetup meet and they came to me and said, I want to buy a house. We just closed on a $1.3 million house for someone that just came to listen to me speak at someone's meetup. And I'm like, I need to keep doing that. It's helping me in a lot of different ways, right? Helping other people is helping me. It's that simple. Look at where your contractor referral came from or who sent you the deal and track it like you're saying. Make this a habit when you're not very busy so it becomes a a foundational component of your business when you scale. You don't have to figure it out while you're moving. I'll let you comment on that and then I want to ask another question. Perfect, because this is really important and I heard this a long time ago. I live in Idaho, so I'm a fan of fly fishing and we have lots of grizzly bears, so it was a perfect analogy for me. So the analogy was simply this. Don't be the fisherman, be the grizzly bear because the fisherman sits on the side of the river with his pole hoping that a fish will go by on that side of the river. Then he hopes that he bites, gets a bite and he can actually get that fish in to eat. The grizzly bear just plops down in the middle of the river on a waterfall and the fish jump into his mouth. The, the point of building out systems and knowing these things and your network so that you can be the grizzly bear, you're putting yourself in the middle of the river. So the deals jump to you. You know, I can't tell you how many people are like, call me up and they're like, I can't find any deals at all. And I'm like, I'm under contract on four. And the reason being is I've developed a system to find these deals and I'm sitting in the waterfall. All four of the deals were some were ones that they, somebody emailed to me. And when we built out our, our, when we started out, I didn't have that. 
I had to go out and hunt for it, right? And that's fine. That's part of it. It's going out and doing the work, meeting the people, showing them value. But then really importantly, what I did was when we met these people, I knew, particularly from sales, that if I said I was going to do something, I was going to do it. So if I told the broker, listen, I'm looking for a house hack. If you're going to bring me a duplex that's $200,000 meets this criteria and I'll buy it and he does and you don't buy it, he's not coming back. It's these people are busy. Their their time is important and they are trying to build the right connection. So you need to make sure you're also the right connection when you're starting out and building. That's really important. So the next point that I wanted to, or a question I want to ask you and Brandon has to do with how you scale because you're making very, yes. very good points about how you need a team. You don't want to be the only person making decisions, but that can feel unattainable for someone who's getting started and they're doing everything themselves. And I'm, I'm working on a, for you too, right? I'm yep. working on a new book for bigger pockets and I'm trying to describe what this process is like from learn the thing you're doing to create systems and scale it to where you can do it at a big level. Yep. And I'm, Let, and I'm toying with this idea and I want to run it by you and you can tell me. Yeah, you think it's no, I, I, I love this. This stuff is fun, right? I mean, okay. the first part is hard. I've been there. It's hard. And then two, it never felt worth it. And you got to realize my first deal that I did, I sold for less money than I bought it for. Oh, it yeah. was not ever a home run, right? I bought it in a teeny third tier market. I made all the wrong moves, all the wrong mistakes. Um, I didn't run it. I had somebody else. It was just, right? I screwed up and it was hard. And then I got done and thought, do you know how much time I spent on this? Yeah. Do you know how much time? You know, it, it was like, but what happened was I learned all the things not to do. So when you're starting out, you don't have the basis. I didn't have any information like this, anybody helping me out. But scale, I view as... We'll start with the first concept, and then I'll move over to the second part. First of all, when scaling, you have to be ready for two things. There's two ways you can scale. I think you need to merge both of them. You can scale off volume or magnitude, okay? So some people say, I'm going to scale off magnitude. I'm just going to get the biggest, best deals I can do. Two of them are home runs, and I'm rich, and I never have to do anything again. Other people are like, no, I'm going to get 100 single-family homes, right? I think both of those are wrong. You need to have volume and magnitude, as in every unit that you put on. So if you have like a, let's say a chart and you're moving right along the chart, that's volume. Magnitude is moving up. Every unit that I, every unit that I put on, I need to also start to move up. So at first I did small little uh, facilities and commercial real estate and even some homes and it, they were small. They were all way under a million dollars. And, but then after I got, you know, four or five of them, I moved up. I said, okay, now it's time to scale up. And so then I started focusing on magnitude. How can I take this $600,000 investment and make it a 1.5? Then I did that three times later. We said, okay, now how do we move up from there? And so then all of a sudden your scale has this upward trajectory. Now, once you get towards the end and you have volume and magnitude, sky's the limits and it has a really big effect on your outcome. But when I look at how you execute on these things or how you build the base, the base is formed up of four things. Think of like a four square. You guys ever play four square with the ball? You know, yep. Oh yeah. Four square is awesome, right? So this is real estate four square. 
So what you do is you have four boxes, and these are the things that you need to compartmentalize to understand how to build. The first box that I always that I had was a platform. This is the hardest because I had to build this, right? Once again, I had to figure out what I was doing. I had to train the people afterwards when most of the time too, I didn't even really 100% know what I was doing. But I knew this action, like we said, leads to this result. So I had those processes that we were documenting. I put them on huge, you know, like the little sticky notes. They have like these ginormous sticky notes. I put them all over our walls over a weekend. And my employees came in, which was literally my partners, my dad and my brother-in-law. They were my two partners. They came in and they're like, what did you do? And I'm like, we're going to systematize this whole thing, right? And there was just these big sticky note boards. And I treated it like it was a billion-dollar company. It was yeah. nowhere even remotely close. It wasn't even a million-dollar company, right? And But we said, here's what we have to do. From there, we could put it in, we could organize it into a book, and then we could hire people to come in and start to do it. And we changed along the way, but we accrued people. We accrued the knowledge that was easy, accessible, that I didn't forget and say, now, how did I do that? Who is that person? So we could accrue the knowledge. And then from there, we built the systems. This is a platform, right? This is a platform that you can build up from. That's the hardest part because it took me a long time. I didn't know what I was doing. I was guessing half the time. And if I went back today, I'd look at it and be like, man, you were dumb. But the next <laughs> uh, the next side that you need to do is technology, okay? So if you're looking at a Foursquare, your top left corner, I view as your platform. It's one of the most important pieces. The bottom right square would be technology. Technology is so important if you're trying to scale because you need to aggregate and disperse information and automate processes quickly or else you will get bogged down and you have to have the right technology to scale off of. So if you get a crappy property management system and there's property management systems that are literally made for single family homes, which is fine. But I looked at everything and said, will this property management system take me to the next level? How are we communicating? Can we do this efficiently over lots of areas? I'm in five states now. And so there was all these things that we had to get with technology and we were putting into places we went. The next two squares, the top right and the bottom left. The top right is deal flow. Okay. So deal flow is obviously important because it's the most, you know, if you don't got a deal, you don't got nothing. So deal flow is really important and having a way that will give you deals consistently is, I, I just, that's, that's it. Right. And that for me was harder because I, I wasn't from real estate. Right. I came from insurance background stuff. So I had to develop that up. And that's been an ongoing process and a struggle for me, which I depended on other people, which is fine. And this is a key that I'm going to tell you right now. If you don't have one of those things, it's okay because you don't need it. So I paid for the technology. I paid for the deal flow. Right. And I even had to pay for my platform and had other people setting. I had to hire another person to manage it at first. Right. But then I started to internalize those things. So I build in my platform to manage and operate, which that took a while. We were operating years with somebody else and it didn't work out. Once we did that, we started to learn. I could see deals. Then when deals came to me, I knew that I could get them. I developed broker relationships. Then I started focusing on off-market deals, and I developed a system to underwrite, to validate, get the information, and then how we communicate, put in offers, different things like that, and that solidified my deal flow. The next one is the one everybody focuses on. That's your bottom left. It's the least important, money. And so you have this platform, you have deal flow, you have technology, and then there's money. 
Everybody focuses on this one, and it's the least important. When you're buying big deals and you're buying lots of deals, money is finite for everyone. There's only so much real estate you can do. Whether you have $100,000 or $5 million, your money is very finite in real estate. So for that bucket, I went the totally hard way. Like, ridiculous. I worked three jobs and my sales job to try to get money to invest. It was not the right way to do it. It slowed down tremendous amount of growth. Um, we would be, we're at 150 million in assets right now. We would be way, way higher than that and bigger than that. And out of the 150 assets that we're in now, that is not from our syndication company or anything. That's just from us building. But money for us came in two ways. We could get the money from working hard, or we could get the assets to give us the money, which that was our second phase, and that got us to $150 million, or you can get it from other people. But at the end of the day, if you have a deal and the platform, which consists, remember, of systems and knowledge and people to execute, the money comes. Money's easy. I don't care if you need $100,000 or $10 million. If you have that, everything else gets put into place. And that becomes the last final key is money. And these four squares I view as the base of all real estate investors' ability to scale and execute. And too, so many people are confused. They think, oh, I'm going to get started in real estate. I don't want to syndicate. I don't want to go big. I'll get a couple houses. Then they're disappointed because the couple houses didn't give them freedom. And then they stop right? So you need to be able to build, if you're looking for financial freedom, right? And you want to do it in a big way or anything like that, you got to scale and you got to use other people's money. At first you're using a bank like everybody else, but then it usually comes to really get going and really get that upward trajectory. You need other people and you need their money. And, and I heard, I want to jump back to a minute what David was saying, but first Mm -hmm. I heard you were getting into syndication. You just mentioned that, right? So like raising money from other people, is that for self-storage as well? Yes. So, well, it's, so we are starting out in self-storage, but we are looking at other assets as well. Everything from, you know, multifamily to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do mobile home parks though. I I would just give those to Brandon. Um, Yeah. Give those to me. (laughs) Yeah. I I need all of them. To different hotels, different things like that. People that we have either knowledge and I don't need the full foundation, but I need other people that have it. So when you're looking at your four square foundation, you don't need to have all those things but you do need to know people that do so you can execute. That's how I started out. That's how we moved into, but syndicating. And I I struggle with the word syndicating because I'm not a syndicate, right? I don't raise capital, but I created a company called Cedar Creek Wealth. And that was our ability to take our deals and our processes and our system, allow other people to come in and do it with us. So instead of doing maybe two, three deals a year, I can do 10 or 15. That helps me out. The investors get to ride up and they get all the wave up too. And then I can do more deals, right? So my platform gets bigger on and on and on. I feel like that's the next level for me. Some people start out that way, right? Which is probably, you can, that's a great way to start out. But using that is really an important piece to it all. That's really good. Yeah. So just to summarize what you just said, in case people want to take some final notes on this, the four squares basically end up being platform, which is like your systems, knowledge, and people. And then there's technology, which is the, the what you build your business on, like the actual tech there. Uh, then there's the deal flow. What are you doing to get leads consistently? And then the money finally comes last. And if you have the first three, the money does seem to come a lot easier. So just a quick example of how I use that in my life. 
Yeah, like we decided to go into the mobile home park industry. I brought in a bunch of people, including like Ryan uh, Murdoch, Brian Murray, and and a lot of others, actually. We have all the foundational technology we need to be able to scale this thing. And then we had to ask ourselves, how are we going to get consistent deal flow? So like I've done a number of things, including brokers and off-market stuff. Uh, I even made a website called bringbrandinadeal.com. We're actually just like offer referral fees for the Bigger Pockets audience. So like all these things were designed to fit those three things. And then money, of course, we syndicate. But I, you also mentioned that you can sometimes use your assets to create the money. In other words, you, yes. you do a deal, make a bunch of money, dump that into future deals. So all yeah. that really, really good stuff. Now, I want to go deeper into self-storage. But before yes. I do, I know, David, you had an analogy or you were going to pull out earlier and we kind uh, of got off on a rabbit trail, but I wanted to bring you back in because you said you had a question for me and I'm greedy and I want to be yeah. asked a question. Well, I want to get so. your guys' advice. I, I'm writing the new oh. book for Bigger oh, that's right, the book, yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm describing a way of thinking about how you get from new guy to where AJ is. So AJ is giving us really good advice about like how you, where you want to end up. And I'm asking if you guys would agree that this model is a good way of looking at it. I look at each step of this process as starting with one dimension, then moving into two dimensions, then three dimensions. So in a one dimensional plane, you can either go forward or backwards. This is where Brandon and I are talking about take action, do stuff learn things, go to meetings. You either do it and you get successful or you don't and you go backwards. That's it. It's very simple. Okay. Learn about the asset class you want to buy in, read a book about it. That's when you start off. Now you can only go so far if you're in a one dimensional plane. And then at a certain point you're running, you're moving so quickly that all of the, the burdens, the administrative tasks of what you're trying to do, slow you down and you hit a ceiling. In order to get blow through that and get to where AJ's talking, you have to add a second dimension. So think about Mario when you're playing Mario Brothers. He just runs back and forth. Well, when he jumps, now there's two dimensions. You can go forward and backwards. You can go up and down. That second dimension is when you learn how to hire people, train people, create a system to leverage part of what you do onto someone else. And with every successful move you make in that direction, there's less for you to do. And you start focusing on high impact thoughts, high impact activities. You get a uh, exponential increase in what you're able to do. But the challenge is you're no longer responsible for just understanding your asset class. Now leadership ability comes into this. How do you recognize talent? How do you lead talent? How do you delegate? How do you hold people accountable? And that's why Brandon and I keep talking about this all the time. This is a component that comes to scaling, to getting better at what you do. And if you don't learn it, your life is miserable because you're doing everything all the time and you'll tap out. Now, the third dimension kicks in when you have to replicate this. This is when you want to like franchise what you're doing or you want to take it and move it into a completely new industry. You want to take your ability to lead people and build systems and start another thing. Like Brandon started doing this with his single family houses. He then leveraged and built a team around him so he could buy houses and flip them. That was the second dimension. Then he took that knowledge and he applied it to mobile home park investing. That's the third dimension. And there's a whole new set of challenges that come with that. And I wanted to run this through with you guys, if you would agree that that's kind of how your businesses evolved. And if you could help me encourage the listeners that you're not just signing up to be a real estate investor, that's the first dimension. You're actually needing to be a leader and a system and a business person. I love that. I, it, you know, it comes back when you're one dimensional. I think that's why when you, when you get to the three dimensional level, you see so much more because your range of viewpoint mm. is bigger mm. and it, then too, by the time you got there, you, you can't get there on your own. So you can't, you just can't. 
you have all the resources and people to work with. But if you're not a leader and people don't want to be around you, they don't trust you. Trust is so big for me. I just, you know, it's my name, it's everything. And I know that that reaps, you know, so much rewards. I, you know, like, like we kind of mentioned before on a triangle of most important to least important being at the top, money's at the top. It's the least important. There's trillions of it. It's like, everywhere, right? And two, you just punch in a few numbers into a computer and there's more of it. It's the least important thing. Trust, knowledge, networks, and your ability to communicate processes, your ability to communicate with others why they should be doing this with you, those are hands down more more uh, important and, and of more value than money. It's No, I love that. I think that's great. Brandon. Yeah, I, I think it's awesome. I think uh I, I think that the the Super Mario, anytime you can put a video game analogy yeah, into absolutely. my life, <laughs> I agree. It's an automatic win. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like here here's what's here's what's nice too is in the beginning, like you don't have to jump in at, at the third dimension, right? Like uh, right now, for many people listening to this, all you need to start thinking about is how do I move and take action and move forward? Because that's where you're at right now. You need to do that. And yes. once you're doing that and you're moving forward, then you can start the up and down jump in a little bit and you can start bringing in some more people. A good example of that is I, early on in my career, like I was just doing stuff and then I brought my mother-in-law just to answer phones because I hate talking to people on the phone. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to answer the phones anymore. So I just hired one person to do something. That was right? your that first was like, step into the second dimension, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I stepped in and I started jumping up and down. I'm like, this is amazing. So it's like, and it relates back to what you said earlier, AJ, which was, you know, I guess like you're finding other people around you, like getting away from the ego of I, I have to do everything or I'm mm-hmm. the only one that can do this all. It's like, hey, there's other people that can do it. I fran- create a franchisable model, so to speak. And today I work maybe two minutes a month on my actual, you know, maybe 10 minutes of reading a report every month on my properties in Grace Harbor, Washington, because like just everything just runs. It's all systematized. Yeah. Uh, so that allowed me to go to the third dimension. Yeah, which was, you know, building a much bigger scalable team, you know, Everything just runs now. I mean, I don't even work that many hours on Open Door Capital like, compared but to But the like, problem is does. when people hear you say that, they think, oh, if I just learn how to buy houses, I'll be Brandon Turner. I'll move to Hawaii. And like when they think about this journey they're taking off on, they think it's a straight shot. And what happens is the minute you get a part of it figured out, there's new challenges. And now you got to overcome all those. And that's your next dimension. And I want everyone listening to know you can have what Brandon has. You can have what AJ has. But your expectations need to be appropriate that you're not just learning one thing. You'll eventually be learning three different powerful skill sets and combining them all is what gives you the life that you have, Brandon. And that has a lot to do with the guests that we bring on, the topics that we bring up. For people that are listening, like this isn't telling me how to find a deal. No, because lots of people can tell you how to find a deal. But what do you do once you get a bunch of them? What do you do when you found so many deals and you're scaling really quick, but you don't have systems in place to support that? And then the whole thing crumbles on you. Can I give an analogy? I got, I got a good one. All right, here we go. This is is another, this is another winner right here. So my daughter Rosie right now is getting into art. She really likes art a little bit, a lot. And uh, one of the things she has in her little workbooks of her like preschool and stuff is the paint by number, right? So there's a a coloring, like simple document. It says number one, orange, number two, red, number three, green. This actually relates back to what you said earlier, AJ, as well. So at like the first level, like you're just like literally just painting by number. You're just filling that in because people are, they want to be told, how do I find a deal? What should my direct mail letter say? Like, what do I say to a broker when I call them? That's like that paint by number, right? But what we're getting at so far in this podcast today, and we are going to switch to a little bit more paint by number here in a second. I actually have a, uh, I want to get into self-storage paint by number for a minute. But what we're teaching is 
here's how a brush works. Here's how you do a stroke with the brush. Now we're not telling you what to paint. I'm not saying you need to go paint a ship and put your, you know, we're not Bob Ross in it here. And, and yes, I just made Bob Ross a verb. We're not Bob Ross in it here and saying, put the, you know, but even he would say that like Bob Ross would even say like, you know, just like make your own version of this, right? Like I'm just showing you the skills needed, the technology, the people you're going to have to paint your own picture. And so what we're doing right now is trying to give you guys from, from again, one of the best investors I know, AJ here, like this is the skills needed to paint an, a really, truly epic picture. Yeah. So take note of that stuff. This is really important because the world changes quickly, as we all know. When I got started, if I was using the same methods now, I would, I would not even be where I'm at now. You know, I went through the hype, the crash, the hype again. And now wherever we're at in the world, which, you know, everybody knows what's going on in the world, I'm there. I have to change. I have to adjust. The, you know the destination, but sometimes the bridge gets washed out, right? Yeah. So uh, you need to be able to take the tools and utilize them on your path. And people's, people that can't utilize the tools around them to change and are expecting an exact way to do things, because mm. what that causes is they're expecting the result, which yeah. markets, people don't care about the result you want. It doesn't matter. So if you're not willing to change, you're not going to be getting those results. And that's just a true thing in real estate. It's you got to be proficient at what the opportunities and what you have around you and build off of it. That creates more opportunities, more resources, and you can change more and keep building. That's awesome. By the way, I want to make a t-shirt that says, I'm Bob Rothen. And then it's going to be a picture of Bob Ross. Yeah, I'm Bob Rossine. Like make it a verb and it's going to be a t-shirt. But I'm pretty sure his face is going to be trademarked. But, you know, if not, that's going to be a t-shirt. Uh, which, by the way, we sell t-shirts now, uh, biggerpockets.com slash shirt. So you can check out some shirts there, including one from last. I the think it was bird last is show, the word, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we actually I designed the shirt. It's awesome. It's all about burr. Duh. Anyway, all right. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, to get six months of rent ready for $1. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high tech sensors that detect break ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, 
hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at slash pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. I want to move into some paint by number a little bit. Let's do it. Uh, and talk about how does somebody, give me some specifics at a high level of how do you get into self-storage? Because I know you just wrote a book on self-storage. Yes. This is something that I am tremendously interested in. Yes. Uh, one, because I think it's super profitable and exciting. But two, uh, I own mobile home parks that have self-storage on them. And we're looking at that as an all, as an avenue of creating more wealth mm-hmm. by expanding those. And so yes. I'm going to use this free consulting time to ask you, how Got do it. I get into self-storage? <laughs> so first of all, I know I'm biased, but I, I am a firm believer that self-storage offers more opportunity and wealth and income creation than any commercial asset on the market. The reason being is the landscape of the industry. So the industry has about, you know, let's take, first of all, let's compare it to, you know, uh, multifamily. 80% of multifamily is owned by institutions, right? Then 20% is owned by more individuals or families, right? Self-storage is almost completely inverse of that. 73%, I think as of today, is owned by mom and pops. Then what's left over is owned by institutions. This means the deal flow for this industry is huge for individuals coming in. There's less competition, right? I mean, I'm in the top point, like 
7% of owners. I mean, it's crazy. And so when you look at the deal flow and the ability to get access to these assets with upside potential, it's huge. Uh, and then on top of that, the industry is consolidating and it's consolidating quick. So I also believe that this is a limited time thing. I think we have 10 to 15 years. And then after that, it's going to resemble uh, multifamily investing. I, I I don't think that this is going to be a forever thing because in when I got started, it was like 85 to almost 90% was owned by mom and pop investors. And so after 2008, two things changed. First of all, um, it got tested during the Great Recession, which everybody looked over and was like, what the heck? All these assets are failing. This thing keeps you know, pumping out cash. Then the next thing that happened was the technology and the ability to run them really came to light, which that was one of the major hurdles for people. And so these things combined have caused acceleration, but it's also opened doors for more access to individuals. So for me, I'm like, you can go out and get a piece of this awesome juicy pie, you know, for the next 15 years. And with the consolidation, once it gets to the 80-20, your storage facility is going to be worth so much value, even if you did very little. But the real benefit to self-storage is what you can do with it. It has so many more lines to create and turn around and build uh, a revenue into that asset class. And when you deal with an asset that's traded on a cap rate, um, those small changes can equal yeah. millions to you. And then you can refinance in a stable recession resistant asset and you can do it non-recourse. And then you have your money out. You have now this non-recourse asset. Your risk is gone. Your capital's back in producing you income forever. And you can turn around and go do it again. Essentially, I created what was called the playbook. Okay. So the playbook was, so my book that I'm releasing, the investor's guide uh, to growing wealth and self-storage, really it was because when you looked at the books on the market, the information on the market, most of it was so outdated and old, it didn't make sense. And there was really nothing that walked you through how to do it. And so uh, information has been limited within this asset class, even though it's humongous. There's more self-storage facilities than McDonald's, Starbucks combined, plus more. I mean, it's, they're, everywhere and investors can get a whole can they can buy them so i'm like we need to create a whole entire book here on how to find deals how to finance how to manage how to run how to all those things right and so the investors guide to growing wealth and self-storage is all of that, but it kind of comes off of this playbook that I made. And for individuals, I think there's a lot of people that say, well, I'm a first-time investor. I can't invest in self-storage. And that's totally not true. I can't, I, I can't tell you how many markets have facilities that are cheaper than fourplexes where I live in a second-tier market. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, that's not true. And you can scale up very easily because these assets get obviously very big and you can learn how to do it. So the playbook has kind of, as outlined, it's a, it's, you know, most of you listening will say, yeah, this is a real estate playbook, not even really a self-storage, but you need to first, as we talked about, you got to identify. So the number one step in the playbook is you got to identify your goals and resources, what you have, what you don't have, who you are and who, who you are. When I got started, I was working easily, you know, 60 plus hours a week. I was commission based. Self-storage could not be my number one. So I didn't have that ability. I had to get into it, work my job and manage that. And 
self-storage provided my ability to do that. So the first thing is I knew I had to get certain amount of help. I had to learn about it. And two, I had to go into smaller assets that I could afford putting, you know, $200,000, $150,000 down on them and then grow it from there. So those were my my resources and what I had the ability to get into. And so that's where me and my partner, my dad started. And from there, you have to identify a market and a facility, obviously, to find the deal. But the second point is even more important. You have to understand what kind of markets you like based upon the goals and what you're trying to achieve, right? Do you want fast appreciation and zero risk at all? And you're going to go into a first tier market or you're like, listen, I need, I need to have some upside on this. I need to make some money. That changes where you go and what kind of deals you're looking for, just like multifamily or any other real estate asset, right? From there, it's really on the due diligence. And the third part is this is the most important part with self-storage. It's underwriting it right? It's making sure that you're in a market that's growing. You don't want to be in a dying market. You want there to be demand. Self-storage can act like a commodity sometimes, although it's not good performers perform, uh, operators operate at levels way, way higher than others on the market. And once again, it's the beauty of self-storage, which I'll get into in a minute, but you have to really understand how to underwrite that thing. What's it worth? You know, I like to think, first of all, price is not value. And I've always believed in this. I'm a firm, firm believer. Price does not equal value. I do not let banks tell me what I can afford, and I don't let brokers tell me what something's worth. So I need to be able to underwrite it, understand what the price that I should pay for is. Whether somebody else down the street's going to pay for it or not has nothing to do with my goals or my resources and ability. So I need to understand for me. The next part is after that, you've identified a market, you've identified a facility, the price you want to buy for, you have to either raise money or you know you have to get your own money, save, raise, whatever it is, you need a capital to put a down payment on it, right? After you put the capital down, let's say, you know, like mine first one was 160,000, I think we put into it. You need to, from there, after you purchase the facility, you need to really look at turning it around. So after the acquisition, once you have this facility, what are you going to do to increase the income and revenue on that facility? And this is what makes self-storage great. Let me give you a quick example. I bought a self-storage facility about, oh geez, what was it now? Three, four years ago. And I bought it at an auction. The facility had very little capital expenditures ever put into it. It was a large facility, but the facility itself had not been run. There was no revenue management. There, they weren't doing rate increases, anything else like that. So when we came at the auction, the person who had done the feasibility study and the person that had determined its work came up with a worth of like $3 million. Now, I understood that was not its worth at all. And I took the normal rates and all the things that they weren't doing, like giving insurance, they weren't, you know, managing rate increases. So you had, let's say that they were pricing a 10 by 10 at $100. Well, a lot of the people in the facility weren't paying $100. They were paying way below that. And the market was 150. So when you priced all these units and these revenue lines, normally the value of it was like $8 million. So we went to a bank and had an appraisal do it off of my numbers. And the appraisal came back at, you know, five, 6 million. So I walked into an auction. Everybody was holding an appraisal that said 3 million. No one had gone and gotten their own appraisal done. 
I was sitting in our in our appraisal that was at six million, knowing that it was worth eight. So I bought it for four, and everybody was like, "Wow, you paid over a million dollars." And I'm like, "No, I didn't overpay. I just got it for two million dollars discounted." <laughs> yeah. I love that you're pointing out that that's not a one-way street, that everyone will use that argument to say, I'm not going to pay that much for that house. It's not worth that much to me. But if you're going to do that, you got to go the other way also. I'm happy to pay over asking price if it's worth this much money. Exactly. And and this is where I come into problems, even like with cap rates, right? Because cap rates are so, I just, I got an issue with them because they're so manipulable, right? A broker that doesn't understand the asset and puts at a worth on a cap rate, it's almost always not only completely wrong, it's it's flawed, it's all sorts of stuff. So when we look at it, that deal, we ended up paying a two or a one cap for. Yeah, I hate when people ask me, what cap rates do you buy a mobile home park at? I'm like, it's completely irrelevant because I'm going to- It's irrelevant. All that talks about is price not value. Yes. And that's a good way of explaining that. Yeah. And they're yeah, different I, I, in every area. On. It's like saying, yeah, what, exactly. what comps do you buy houses at? Yeah. <laughs> well, is it in Maui or is it in Wisconsin? Yeah. Exactly. Yet that's the determining factor. Uh-huh. And everybody looked at it and said, you bought it at a one cap. You're crazy. Three months later, we'd increased the gross revenue by over 35% wow. and occupancy had risen. Wow. And we did virtually nothing to the facility. Yep. We ended up redoing the office. So we put 150000 into it later on down the road. But nothing except operationals, revenue management, and pricing. We'd increase the facility by value. So three months later, all of a sudden, we'd bought it at whatever it was, a 12 or 15 cap. So that's why the cap rate's irrelevant because it had nothing to do with its actual value. And that yes. right there is why we say start at the end, learn what you're doing, and work backwards instead of starting at the beginning and saying, what's the first step? Learn how to price a house. Mm -hmm. Look at cap rate, look at NOI, come up with an answer. You miss all those opportunities that you're describing, AJ, when you say, give me the paint by numbers thing. What's the first step that I do? And, you know, a great way to look at this is they go, oh, great, AJ. Well, that's fine. But you know how to do that. Well, when I was buying my first one, I didn't. (laughs) Right. right? And so I knew that I had to go to a place where I could get more out of my money. So I was priced out of a lot of the major markets. I was priced out of a lot of these things. So I had to go to a small city and I went to a small city and I bought a facility and we learned. And from there, so we took, we, we sold that for 20,000 less that first one than we'd bought it for. We took that money. We rolled it immediately into a new one and we bought it for right about, I think it was 800,000 just over 800,000. Eight months later, we sold it for a million. We took that and bought a 4 million one. And then we expanded it. We still own the 4 million one today, which is and expanded by 30,000 square feet. It's got to be about a $10 million value. And that was $160,000 that we'd put into it. So that $160,000 has made us somewhere around 4 million, not including all the cash flow. To give you any idea, that one nets me almost double what I bought my first one for. Yeah. And that happened within a, a, a three-year period of time. Now, once again, I didn't know. I had no idea. But when I learned, I applied, I moved, and I made adjustments. I built out my systems, right? I found opportunities. I realized, to put my pride in the back end, this was stupid, AJ, buy another one that's better. I cut my loss, and I bought a better deal, and then we rinsed repeat. Yeah. 
Yeah. This is why I teach this concept a lot on bigger pockets called the stack. And it basically says like, if you start with like a single family house or a duplex, start with something small and then make the mistakes, learn the lessons, go into something a little bit larger, make the mistakes, learn the lessons, go into something larger. And so by doing so, this is exactly what you did. And you just explained, you scaled your business because when you look at the entire, let's call it a pyramid, even though there's a lot of connotations to pyramid scheme here, but <laughs> just in name only, right? So if you look at this pyramid at the very top, you bought a single family house or, or a small thing. In your case, you bought this small little self storage, right? Then you bought mm-hmm. bigger self storage, then even bigger self storage. Then you built out this platform and this business that can buy lots of self storage. When you look at your whole portfolio over the course of a decade, how much does that very first little tiny deal at the top matter? It doesn't at all. The only thing it matters is knowledge and experience and confidence, right? Like that's really what matters yeah. is that you get the confidence. Yeah, that, and that knowledge. first facility ended up being like 60, the, the $20,000 loss ended up being like 60 million in equity. Exactly. Yeah. Like who cares? Like, who cares? Yeah. It's irrelevant. But, you move but forward. what I learned yeah. was gold. Yep. And that's the thing. It's like when I did that first facility, that was it was a golden goose, not the actual facility, but the asset class, right? What I learned. And that's what produced all the dividends. So after you've done, like you purchase your facility, number six, I know we got sidetracked, but uh, number six is you create value through operational improvements and targeted marketing. And this is really where a lot of our success, almost all of it comes through. We use operations through price management and finding the right tenants. Because in self-storage, you have three tenants. You have tenants that care about price. You have tenants that care about location. And you have tenants that care a lot about quality. I buy facilities that tenants care about price. I kick them out and I bring in tenants that care about quality. The spread between that is like double, right? It, It can be massive depending on what you're buying, how you're doing it. We do that through our operational ability. We increase pricings. We increase the value offering. We add insurance. We do box sales, all sorts of stuff, right? Then from there, after you've done that, now we're at the real awesome part because now I take this facility and I can refinance it and get my capital out tax free and go do it again. And then I can improve it, refinance, take my capital out tax-free and do it again without ever losing the assets. I can move them over into a non-recourse model, which then all of a sudden, all my capital's out, all my risk is out. Yeah, what do you mean by I go non- do it again. Explain non-recourse for those who are unfamiliar. Yeah, so one of my, my goal is simple when investing. I want infinite returns without risk. I know it's, you know, it's a simple goal, but <laughs> the reason being is I, if, let's say once again, my 160,000 I put into a facility, then we moved it up and we got a million and we rolled that into the next one. The million we rolled into, we refinanced, we got that out. Now I have zero risk on my capital because I pulled it out, right? So now the returns are infinite. Yep. Now risk though is different than returns. Okay. So risk can mean me signing on the bank loan. So it doesn't make any sense to refinance, max out the loan and not have a good margin on that and then hold the note. And then if things go bad, you're screwed. Like, no, I want to refinance at 70, 30. And then I do that through refinancing, which means I'm not putting my assets and my name on the line. The bank takes the risk because what normally happens to this and a lot of method that we use is they take our debt, Okay, so we go to a broker, we go to what's called the CMBS market. They take our debt, 
They put it with lots of other real estate assets debts, and they turn this into a financial vehicle called a bond. That bond then is sold on the open market, and all these investors buy it to make 3% or less or whatever it is. And they now take the risk. So I shift my risk onto those investors because that asset is what backs the investors, not me. If the asset goes under because we're in a recession or whatever, they don't come after my house. They don't get a ticket. The investors just lose their money. This is a risk transfer. So I take my capital out plus more usually. I can put it into more deals. Now I'm diversifying my cash flow. I take the risk from capital away. I take the risk from suing or losing my house or anything else like that away through a method of non-recourse. Insurance companies will do non-recourse too, but that is really our model. That's how we operate. And then that compounds our capital while lowering our risk. And we still own 100% the assets. Those investors that buy the bond, they own the bond. They don't own my storage facility. I do. It's like having your cake and eating it too. And when you look at this and you build it out, and I build how you do this in the book, like I show it out. It's like when I first started explaining this to people, they're like, hold on. In three years, you get a hundred plus percent of your money back. You get rid of all the risk. You still own it, have all control and say, and you get a check now for life. And then once it, as it grows and gets more valuable, you do it again. And to all that money that you're making is tax-free. And I'm like, yeah, it like <laughs> blows their mind, right? It's like, yep. I didn't even know that was possible because it blew my mind when I found, found out about it. So yep. basically what you're doing here is, and for those who, who probably pick up on this, you're burring commercial real estate. So the burr strategy is something we talk a lot about with small deals around bigger pockets. But in reality, a lot of people don't realize this. The idea, the concept of the burst strategy actually came, was birthed from the commercial real estate space of guys like you doing exactly what you're doing. So before the word burr ever came around, which for those who don't know what it means, it means you buy a property, you rehab it or improve it. You rent it out, you get higher rents for it. You then go and refinance it, like AJ is talking about here, is getting all your money back, which gives you all your money, and then you repeat the process. So this happens with duplexes, single family, fiveplexes, mobile home parks. We're doing the exact same model, exactly what you're doing. We're doing with mobile home parks. And and what's similar about both mobile home parks and self-storage is that because, and this gets a little bit into the math weeds here, but listen closely, guys, this is important. Because our values are so much lower, meaning, or sorry, value, our, our rents are so much lower, adjustments to rent is a much higher percentage than on a big property. So in other words, if you have a yes. rental that's $2,000 a month for your nice rental property that you're renting out and you increase rent by $100, that's a pretty big jump, $100 to going from, now you're at $2,100, you just increased it 5%. So your net operating income or your value, your your property is worth maybe 5% more. But if you have a place where you're renting a unit for $100 a month and you increase or it 50. to 150 or yeah, from 50 to 100, you've now doubled 100, like a, a fully doubled your rent, which means because commercial real estate is valued on how much income you make, basically how much profit you make you've now doubled the value of your property or maybe more. And so mobile home parks, same way. They're a couple hundred dollars a month for lot rent. We go from 200 to 300. That's a hundred dollars, but we just increased 50% of the value of our park by just doing that. Now that's a, you know, not that we always go and jump rent from 200 to 300, but the idea being percentage wise on cheaper rents, the same thing is true for like workforce housing and, and, and other low income housing mm-hmm. is the smaller rents actually have a bigger sway yeah. in terms of percentage wise. It's disproportionate to what you're doing. And mm-hmm. that's why I love self-storage. So my increases are disproportionate. If I went and bought a multifamily property, all of the, you know, two bedrooms, one bathroom, 
that are similar quality are going to sell at the same amount, right? That's not how self-storage works. So for me, we get to institute things called di- like dynamic pricing. So when you go on an airline and you're sitting in a seat, you did not pay the same per- price as the person next to you. Mm-hmm. So I adjust my prices with demand. That's so so cool. what that means is that once we're getting full, the prices that the, you know, the other people are paying, they could be coming in and their street rate is double than what the guy came in, you know, two years ago at. But then two, that guy that came in there is always headed to the street rate. Every six to nine months, he gets a rate increase. And if I have high demand, I'm going to give him a 12% annual rate increase every single year or more. And so lots of times we'll buy the property. We're giving an initial, everyone, we're getting all the units up to a certain level. Okay. So once again, let's say that you have a hundred 10 by 10s. And the person that owns the facility, their street price right now is $100. 50% or maybe even more of those sometimes are at 50 bucks. They're half of what he's even charging because they either came in late, they did all those stuff. So what we do is when we buy it, we immediately bring all the prices up to where they should be. This can result in very large increases, which will lose some people. That's great. Leave because then I'm going out and I'm marketing to people that I know are going to pay the most. So I do targeted marketing. We bring them in. And when we bring them in, the street rates 50% higher. It's now 150 bucks. So 50%, I got a 50% increase in rate increase from taking the people from 50 just to what's what they were charging when I bought it to 150. Then the new street rates, 150 and the 30, the, you know, whatever, 30% or 20% of people I lost, I fill in at 150 bucks. My now average rate increase within the four months is a, you know, whatever it, you know, however much that is 150% or whatnot, because now the half of the populations are 30% at 150, the rest's at 100, and they all get individual rate increases six to nine months, depending on when they signed up. So that means I don't ever have mass, mass move outs, and I'm constantly, every month, getting rate increases. So someone in all my buildings and all my units is getting a rate increase this month, all of them. And if they don't like it and they leave, that's just one unit at 900 that I have to replace. It's insignificant in the revenue, but over a total, it's very large. So that helps us keep them. So let's say then demand drops really high. I'm not going to go cut the person that's at 150 back, but I may put somebody in now at 100 and then work on getting them up. Because when you got, you know, when you have a 10 by 20 and it's full of your entire house stuff and it's January in the Northwest, you ain't going anywhere yeah. because a $50 rate increase, you know, of 30% or whatnot is 15 bucks. Ain't nobody caring. I'm not going to go spend days moving all my stuff out in January for 15 bucks. All these things on top of each other. This is stuff I'm talking about without any capital expenditures, even in the building. So now some of them, we put huge capital expenditures in, right? And we'll go and we'll double or triple the rates, but this is operational efficiencies. That's it. Well, so I, I mean, it's, it definitely is a good reason why self-storage is so powerful, right? Like, I mean, like this ability to raise your rents, the ability, I mean, like evictions are going to be totally different. We didn't, we don't need to go into that, but like, that's a different process because you're not kicking people out of their homes. Yeah. You basically just tell them to leave. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of really good reasons uh, to go into this. What I'm wondering is those people obviously want to know more. They can pick up a copy of your book and they should, uh, but can you quickly, I just, you know, cause we spent like, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes going over these, the playbook. Can you list what those are? Okay. People are taking notes and they missed one. Like what were the, the the, kind of the points there? 
here we have kind of a seven point process. This is identifying your, not only goals, but your resources. Once again, this will let you know what you need to add. Think of the four square. Okay. It's okay if you don't have everything, but you need to identify what you don't have so you can add it in. Then the next one is you need to identify your markets or facilities that types that you want to buy, which may depend on capital, different things like that, right? Most people start small. That's okay. Start at a really small facility. The next thing is performing your due diligence. And this gets into demand, okay? So if you have, if you're buying a storage facility that it's 10 by 10s or 50 bucks and everybody else on the market's 100 bucks, you know there's a lot of upside. If you buy a storage facility that's, you know, 10 by 10s at 100 bucks and everybody's at 50 bucks, there's a lot more downside than known upside. So I don't believe in just guessing and hoping real estate goes up. I deal with what's called money on the table. And money on the table is the difference between what that facility is doing now and what the market is doing. That spread is a riskless profit. So there's all this money sitting on the table. It may be insurance sales that the owner just didn't even take. I just buy it and I just pick up the money. That's all. So I look for the leftover money sitting at the table. I buy it. I take the money off the table. The next then is your, so that's three, saving, raising money, however else you're going to do it, right? So whether that's by yourself, friends, family, all that kind of stuff, how much capital do you need and creating a system to which you can ask for getting the right LLCs done, all that that you need to do. The next one is actually acquiring the facility, okay? Now, the... Acquiring the facility, like especially in the book, we go over after you buy it, what all has to be done. Vendors, how you need to transition it over to your name and how you need to set it up right. Do you need to hire someone? Are you automating the facility? All that kind of stuff. Then you create the value through operational improvements and targeted marking. This is the process of taking your money off the table. Then the last one is after you got all your money off the table, refinance it. Or just use the revenue, whichever you want to do, and go buy more. And then you just repeat and you scale like we talked about before. If you're starting out small, do a couple small ones, but then work on volume as well as magnitude. Go bigger. Do more. And it's a way to leverage your knowledge, your process, which once again – all of it is given everything in, in the book. You can literally just use it, and it's a total playbook from point A to point B. And that's the point of it, right? And so then you just leverage it, and you keep building. And if you want to, maybe you don't want to. Maybe you just want one. That's yeah. fine, too. Maybe you want to just sit and retire on your yeah. beach because you bought one big magnitude. But no, here's what exactly. I want to I point out to everybody before we move on to the fire round. I mean, the famous four. I think we'll skip fire round today. It is a long show uh, in a good way. But so- <laughs> Notice, I'm going to read these seven off real quick. Again, real quick, I'm going to read them off because I want people to take notice of how this applies, not just to self-storage, but it applies to anything. Number one, identify your goals and resources. Can you do that if you're trying to buy your first property? Of course you can, and you should. Secondly, what kind of markets and facilities? In other words, where are you going to invest and what property type are you going to buy? Are you going to buy a single family house in this neighborhood? Are you going to buy a duplex, an apartment complex, whatever? Number three, do your due diligence. Know what you're getting into, right? Number four, figure out the financing, the money, saving and raising money. Number five, Buy the property, close on it, make it happen, right? Number six, increase the value by improving it. Whether you're flipping, whether you're doing rentals, whatever, improve it, do what you're trying to do. Uh, improve your marketing, which can be a big way. I, mean, mark, I think we, we don't talk enough about that on the show, but marketing is huge for increase, increasing rents. And then finally, number seven, 
refinance and repeat the process. So basically finish the burr out. This applies to almost any type of you know rental real estate really is these same seven steps. This really is like the playbook, the paint by number for scaling your real estate business. It really is. So you know, AJ, thank you. And two, I want to, I want to mention something here because I know we all have so many limiting beliefs as well as I did when I started. I have some guys that, you know, they're just awesome. I got a call and he's like, Hey, listen, I know you bought a bankrupt super Kmart and turned it into a storage facility. Mm -hmm. I have a bankrupt super Kmart in my, my town. And if you would let me in on the, he's like, I have it under contract. If you'd let me in on the deal maybe, and let me learn from you, then, you know, I'd love to do this with you. Well, for me, I'm like, great. I'm all the better. Right. And so that person that's never been in self-storage, he owns no property is now dealing with the city. He's doing all these things and he's going to manage the conversion of the property. I'm giving him a complete equity split in the entire deal. And then I'm running it. I'm turning it around. I am going to refinance him out, give him all the money and everything back. He has zero money. He's not going to put anything into it because he doesn't have it. And he is going to own what will be a $20 million asset. And he's going to own 10% of it. And he's going to, and out of that 20 million, it's going to cost us seven to build. Think about the equity and what he just did with no money at all. And that's why I really want to make this important. If you know, which he did, he knew me, he knew what I needed. He understood this stuff. He brought to me value and he's going to be getting all this money, all this upside without having the least important thing, money. So get rid of those limiting beliefs and you say, oh, it's storage. It's either complicated. I can't do it. Anything. It's just not true. There's so many ways to go about it. And there's so many ways to get into the business and just identify once again, your resources. Yeah. So good, man. Really, really, really good stuff. Yeah. I, we talk about the deal delta, a lot of bigger pockets where you got to have three things, knowledge, hustle, and uh, money, but you don't need all three. Just if you don't have the money, then get the knowledge and hustle like this guy did for you. Find somebody else who's got the money, put the deal together, whether it's you're joining with a large operator like yourself or whether you're just bringing in a, a silent partner who can give you the down payment. The, the, yes. Again, this this is the paint strokes we're talking about. This is the tools and the method for painting. You can apply them to whatever art you're trying to paint. So with that, let's move over to the last segment of the show. It's time for our famous four. All right, this is part of the show where we uh, ask the same four questions we ask every guest every week. And AJ, I know we asked you these questions last time, but uh, in case anything changed, we'll ask them again. Number one, what's your current favorite real estate related book besides your own? Because I'm sure that's probably all consuming right now. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 I'm going to have to give a shout out to Brian Murray. I bought his book. Yeah. And... I have just been in an absolute deep dive and I'm not, I don't do apartment buildings, but it's helped me out a lot because once again, I'm trying to take tools from other people and use them in my own. So I think that one, and then Schwartz just had a Schwartzman from Blackstone had mm. a book. Um, actually, that's another question. That's a business book. Oh, is it? Okay. I gotta wait. Yeah. There. I gotta well, wait. By the way, by the way, that. You did. <laughs> Save. Uh, by the way, that book, Brian Murray's book is called Crushing It in Apartments and Commercial Real Estate. Yes. And did you know, AJ, that Brian and I are actually co-writing uh, uh, two books. I don't think I've announced them on the podcast yet. We're co-writing two books together right now. We're kind of like he's leading one, I'm leading the other, but we're doing it together on uh, multifamily investing. That'll be out next year. So yeah, I was uh, talking to him last week and he was telling me about that. And I was yeah. like, I'm, I'm excited. I'm yeah. really excited. Yeah. It's going to be, to that one. it's going to be pretty darn awesome. So uh, anyway, that's a year out. So this is your first tease of it. It's coming, but uh, yeah, that book was so like mon- monumental for me. I was like, I got to write with Brian. And so we're doing it together. So anyway, number two, 
Random question, uh, AJ. I just pulled this out of the air. Yeah. What's your favorite business book? <laughs> you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, let me think. I'm going to have to think about this one for a second, but I think I can go with it. Oh, okay. Let's uh, go with What It Takes by Stephen A. Schwartzman. Now, this this book is brand new. It's I, I don't know that I classify it as my favorite, but I'm absolutely loving it right now. I, I just finished it like a week ago. And the reason I like it is because for those of you that don't know, Blackstone is the largest holder of real estate in the world. And so they are worth something like $500 billion. It's crazy, but they own more real estate than anybody. And he didn't even get started in real estate. He was trying to do mergers and acquisitions, but all those things that we talked about building up systems, creating business models, finding the right people. This is the book you need to listen to. And especially if you're one of the guys that's like, I'm an empire builder. I want to go big. I want to really knock it out of the park. This is an awesome, awesome book for you. Blackstone is so, I'm always, I'm often confused with how little they get talked about because of their sheer size. I mean, everyone knows about Google. Everyone knows about Apple. You don't hear Blackstone get talked about a lot, but they are, I mean, how would you compare how much bigger they are compared to everyone else? (laughs) <laughs> oh, they are. I mean, it's just they're a juggernaut. I mean, you're talking Schwartzman makes like 800 million a year and like his income. It's you know, it's it's almost not fathomable. And two, I don't know how they actually underwrite it because these guys own everything from businesses to, you know, towers mm-hmm. all over the world, Tokyo, Japan. I mean, these guys own so much real estate. I, I wonder the valuations, you know, they, how wrong they may they be. They almost single handedly. And take that with a grain of salt when I say single-handedly, turned around the recession of real estate values. When yes. they got into the game and started mm-hmm. buying up properties at auction at the scale they did, they soaked up- Single-family homes. Yeah, see, that's what I mean. Single-family homes. They soaked yeah. up so much supply that they returned an equilibrium to supply and demand and prices <laughs> could actually rise again. It was like, they were like this towel that came yep. in and just wiped up all the mess. And then boom, well, we were too, like, you know, go. And, and the thing that I love about that is- they saw an opportunity, but like most people, you say, oh, it's too big. I'm not going to do it. These guys are doing, you know, $15 billion deals and they go, they saw an opportunity oh, and yeah. they decided, oh, let's, let, let's, let's go buy a hundred thousand dollar homes. Yep. And they went in and they figured out how to use technology. Often they made an app to underwrite it, go to auctions to buy it. And then they figured out how to manage it. And they are the largest single family homeowner in the United States. You remember when Warren Buffett and, made that comment, if I could, I would buy a bunch of single family homes and he just he yes. didn't have the infrastructure to manage that. Well, Blackstone figured it out and they went in there and, and, you know, to your point, I'll tie this in. They were the ones that said, what are they worth to us? Okay. To the person who's buying houses at auctions, they're like, I'm not paying more than 110. I'll pay 95 for that thing. Blackstone said, I'll pay 130. I don't care. I'm borrowing money at 2%. It's going to go up eventually. I can rent yes. it out in the meantime. When the thing's worth 300, do you really care that you didn't get it at over 110? And and that's a perfect example of what you said. Yep. If it met their criteria, they acquired it. That's how we view storage. So we view everything. It's you've got to have it be ready to be executed, to move fast. And they did it in a way that is just unbelievable, which once again, for people that said you either couldn't do that or it was impossible, it's yeah. that just doesn't yeah. exist. By, by the way, this worked really well for getting Jocko on the podcast. I'm going to do it now is is by putting a shout out to our audience. If anybody has a connection to Steven Schwartzman. <laughs> 
please hit him up and tell him that the Bigger Pockets podcast would like to interview. And we're going to do an episode called from, you know, from zero to a million houses in 35 years or whatever. It'll be amazing. No, it's uh, from zero to a million yeah. houses it, in like two years. And, That's what they yeah, get. Yeah, two years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, those episodes tend to be our best episodes. It's like the, you know, zero to 10 houses in two right, years, yeah. zero to 20. Yeah, zero to a million. It's going to be... uh that's going to be the show. So, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin's our producer. Kevin, we're going to need you to get to work on that. So give uh, Stephen, Uncle Steve, a call <laughs> later today if you could. Number three, David, you want to Moving ask along. Me? What are some of your hobbies, AJ? That's not real estate. Yeah. Um, I So I do have four children. Um, I love the outdoors. I, I'm fly fisherman, backpacker, skier. You know, after not being able to to walk and everything, I was – I. I was bound and determined to get back up on the mountains and that, you know, that's really important for me and a great way that I can share time with my children and build bonds. So awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, man. All right. Well, final question. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or just never get started? You know what? I'm going to go back to the same thing talked about before, humility. Humility doesn't mean that you don't think you're good, doesn't mean things. It means that you're simply aware that everyone's flawed and so are you, and that's okay. And so you don't need to front and you can be honest with yourself. And then when you're honest with yourself, that allows you to figure out the resources that you need to accomplish a goal. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I see people, they trip themselves up and it's just in their head. It's that's it. I a hundred percent agree. Sometimes people say, David, what do you think you did different than other people? And they're expecting me to say hustle grit. I did what they didn't. It's not, I was very honest with myself about my flaws and I quickly looked for other people and just admitted, I'm not good at that. I'm never going to be good at that. Let me get someone who's good at it. And the quicker you can get to that point. I mean, AJ, you probably agree that the faster you will scale. Absolutely. It, it's the, it, if everybody you want to grow, you want to get bigger and stuff, get out of your own way. That's yeah. the, that's the best way to do it. Get out of your own way and you'll grow right along with everybody else. It's kind of an unspoken rule. Brandon and I have in our friendship. If I see something that I know he doesn't like doing, or he's not good at, I just jump in and do it. I just have carte blanche, like <laughs> fridge privilege. You walk in my house, you can go in the fridge. And he does the same thing for me. He's like, Oh God, David's never going to be able to do this. He's going to screw it up so bad. And he just jumps in and like speaks for me in many ways. And it's so good. And like that principle works in many aspects of life, your friendships, your relationships, your business, yes. all of it. Well, on, on that note, this morning I got an email. So there's been an email. I, David knows I'm not very fast at responding to my email. And so there was an email thread where Katie asked if she could interview. Katie is a head of publishing and head of Bigger Pockets Wealth magazine. <laughs> asked if she could interview David and I for the magazine to do a to a, a, a feature or a discussion, right? I just, as typical, I'm like a week behind on my email and responding. So David's response, first one was, I think the interview idea is great. Brandon would probably prefer that too. Answers for me, right? Less pressure on us to come up with the content. We can give them information in less time. So they want to interview. Brandon, any objections? Of course, I didn't even see that one, so I didn't respond to it. So then David responds, I'm in. And if Brandon is too busy, I can answer for him in his voice using phrases like, quote, without further ado, and quote, that's fantastic. And quote, here's what I like about that. Because apparently David knows how I talk on podcasts. So it reads just like him. <laughs> That's There's a, awesome. a real example of how that works uh, in, in, the real, in the real world. That's awesome. In fact, I haven't actually answered any of my Instagram messages in over two years. David just sits on Instagram 24-7 just <laughs> responding for me. And, and answers nobody every, knows. <laughs> nobody knows. David doesn't actually be, he's not actually a real estate agent. He just is my virtual assistant, really. So <laughs> y'all got, y'all got punked. David's just my assistant. That's All crazy. right. 
<laughs> and now you guys have seen a peek behind the curtain of what really goes yeah. on. Yeah. That's right. That's not true. That's not true. Yeah. I, I, do I don't go on his Instagram account. Yeah. It's probably, it would be the opposite. He would be on mine responding to people in a way that's like much more friendly and warm. Right. I'm just always yeah. like, here's the facts. Here true. they go. And, and I always go to Brandon when I'm like, okay, here's what I want to say, but I don't know how to yeah, say how it. How do I say this nice thing? And he's yeah, like, how do I wrap it in a hug? And do I'm this. Like, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I'm like Olaf from the Frozen movies, uh, which would make no sense to you, David. But yeah, Olaf, like he's, like, he's a snowman who likes warm hugs. Yeah. All right. Last question, on. AJ. Thank you very much <laughs> yes. for your time today. Can you tell me, for people who want to know more, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, so I have a site called Self Storage Income. You can go to that. It's where, you know, have all our content information. The podcast, Self Storage Income, it's you know, solely devoted to self-storage. We talk about execution. We talk about details. We interview people and it's, it's the largest self-storage income podcast out there. And then uh, once again, the book, The Investor's Guide to Growing Wealth in Self-Storage, that's on Amazon, or you can get it on my site. And then Instagram, of course, AJ Osborne, that I got really lucky with that handle, yeah. uh, AJ Osborne, and you can go on there and DM me, you can follow me and we go through and I'll, I'll post our projects, our turnaround, everything from different businesses that I own. So you can uh, uh, kind of see behind the curtains as we just saw with you guys. And we we show, you know, I, I try to be as completely transparent as possible with everything. I, I'm I'm an open book once again. So I, I, you know, I try to tell everybody so they can see how it's really done. That was hard for me when I was getting started because I felt like, you know, we didn't have social media or anything. You never really saw how it was done. Um, but yeah, email self-storage income too. It's got our contact. You can email directly. This all goes to my phone. I'm literally, you're just talking to me. So any of those things are great. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. It's awesome having you here. And, you know, I just, I, every time I talk to you, I just, I walk away like a, a better investor. So I appreciate you for that. Well, the last time we talked, we, we were, last time I was at your place, which we were supposed to be this. I know. This we were spring, supposed to be again. I was so mad. But <laughs> yeah, you told me to write a book. And, and then the group that we were in told me that I should start this syndication company and start doing deals with other people. And you create a lot of work for me. So my, I think my wife's going to be nervous about uh, me going over and hanging out with you when we do it again. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, we're going to try to reshift the mastermind to this fall maybe if uh if this yes. whole shutdown in hawaii doesn't or if it finally goes away let's hope let's hope all right man well david you want to take us out of here yeah this was a great job thank you guys very much for your time today aj i think that uh you definitely raised the bar as far as the amount of content that we squeezed into an hour and a half of or whatever <laughs> this was so this is what i'm going to listen to two or three times because i'm sure when there's this much content it's easy to miss it but uh, I had a great time and thanks for sharing it. And go, make sure you go back to episode 286. Listen to, to AJ's yeah. story on there. Without further ado, this is David Green <laughs> for Brandon, <laughs> a peek behind the scenes Turner signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the BiggerPockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, 
medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.